I'm the oldest person in the congregation today, so therefore I might be the most traditional, or at least I've been ex- I've experienced a lot of different traditions in those <clears throat> years that I've lived. Um, I noticed, and I can't help but notice, I, and Jason said this as well, when we share the Lord's table, I really feel like a grandfather watching all my children do stuff. And in in a, in a, it's not that I lord over you, but I rejoice in the people enjoying remembering the Lord's death till he comes. <clears throat> and I noticed that there's different ways people do this, different churches. We were in a church last night where I wondered, I mean, last week where I thought, when do we go? It's just everybody's waiting for somebody else to go, you know. And I noticed that some families here fill one big cup and pass it down and so forth. And I couldn't help but notice there's one woman that is definitely a mother, and I won't, <clears throat> I won't mention her name, Ms. Wilma, but I noticed that she poured out everybody's cups while she was here, and I thought, that's a mother, that's a grandmother, and it's a wonderful thing. But at any rate, I want to talk a little bit about traditions because we're getting ready to light candles, and... A lot of people do it a lot of different ways. So I ask you, do any of you use Advent candles at home? I see that hand. Yes. <clears throat> well, there's, I see at least three families that are identified, perhaps more. Uh, well, Providence Bible Church does not ascribe to any strict man-made tradition. We proved that this morning when Bob forgot what we were supposed to say. <laughs> and the fact is that the whole purpose of these traditions are to reinforce what we believe from the scriptures. Uh, we don't sneer at others who seem to add layer upon layer of tradition and make it almost a requirement. We're not about that here. So my question is this. Which is the correct way to light the Advent candles? way that I've been most recently and most commonly referred to is disorder. Some of you wouldn't like a pink one. Some of you wouldn't even have a pink one. You have all red ones. That's Will's boy. (laughs) Well, the point is this. I don't know how it should be done, and you don't either, because there's many different ways of looking at it, many various colors, meanings that can be found. And I've read a few, and I mean, generally speaking, we've followed popular tradition, hope, faith, joy, so forth. Uh, I want to read from a... 
<clears throat> portion. Of course, I researched to trying to figure out what's the best thing to do. Let me say this. I certainly am not trying to establish any tradition. We can do it differently, different ways. The important thing is, why do we do it? And it's to remember the Lord for the second advent. This is from a site called umc.org, so I imagine it's United Methodist. And uh, you can kind of disregard the first few words, but the last sentence is important. During each Sunday of the Advent season, we focus on one of the four virtues Jesus brings, hope, love, joy, and peace. Others consider the lighting of the first candle to symbolize expectation, and we did that essentially two weeks ago. And then hope, and then purity. The Christ candle is lit on Christmas. But this is the sentence that I like from their piece. The order and exact wording vary among churches, but the wreath continually reminds us of whom we are called to be as followers of Jesus. That's the important thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. We have enjoyed the emphasis on hope and expectation in the first Sunday of Advent. Um, last week we heard about faith and peace and a great emphasis on Jesus being the light of the world. I have no problem designating this third candle as joy. This is a special place. I got Coke or tea or something. <clears throat> I need the sugar. Anytime I go like that. <clears throat> we could call this joy. And without, again, suggesting any establishment of any tradition, I feel free to designate my candle as wonderful. The wonder of Jesus Christ. May we pray together. Lord, we do thank you for the season. We thank you, Lord, for the Ways in which we're reminded, as Bob told us this morning, that we remember. Help us, Lord, to do that as a body of Christ here assembled and as individuals. We thank you, Lord, for the Christ who is certainly wonderful. And we pray in his name that you'll do among us what you'd have to do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's have that verse I couldn't help I mean I love the music who doesn't like Christmas music look at that by thine own eternal spirit rule in our all our hearts alone by thine all sufficient merit raise to us thy glorious throne I was stricken by that line by thine all sufficient merit can you say amen right there and, uh, you know, in my looking into the Advent season and the way it's expressed in different traditions, I've got to tell you, I like music. I used to play jazz music. I like bluegrass music probably the best. I like all kinds of music. But you know the most beautiful song I think I ever heard is Ave Maria. And I think, that's a shame that it's asking for prayer from a, a woman, greatly used by God. But in some traditions anciently in the Roman church, when you go to a home that you're not well known, you shout out Ave Maria, and the answer is conceived without sin. And I'm thinking, it's a waste of wonderful music 
to sing about something. When we have an all-sufficient Savior, all-sufficient merit, our traditions, the saints, can't nobody help us? None, not any, because we have an all-sufficient Savior. Will you stand for me for the reading of a few verses in Isaiah chapter 9, which is well known to each of us. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You may be seated. We're going to visit some fairly familiar passages this morning. And I say in advance, not that I need to convince you of these things, but cause you to remember these things. First in Isaiah, Isaiah, (laughs) that's what happens when you live in South Africa for a while. You learn to mispronounce American English. This this portion comes uh, after a failed plot to attack Judah by the northern kingdom along with Ephraim and Syria. We read these words in Isaiah 7. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, who was the king of Judah. Ask a son of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Here then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So this portion of scripture definitely has an immediate context for the circumstances of Ahaz's day. But as often the case, it also has reference to future and the incarnation of our Lord Jesus. I know I don't need to convince you of these things. The prophetic application of the first advent, even the second advent predicted. But just to confirm the prophetic promise, notice a few prophecies with me. And these are all, once again, confirmed in the New Testament. First of all, in Genesis 3.15, he was the seed of the woman. Genesis 3.15. I wish I was clever as some of these people that can just flip their fingers and Genesis 3.15 for the last time. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't even recognize it myself. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise bruise his feet. And that prophecy is fulfilled in Galatians 4. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Then again, in Genesis 12, we find he's descended from Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abraham, to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. 
And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Fulfilled again in Matthew 1, which says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In Genesis 49, we find that he's predicted to be of the tribe of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until the tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. In Luke chapter 1, fulfilled. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. He was to be the heir of that throne of David, Isaiah 9. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Fulfilled in Luke chapter 1, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Even his birthplace in Bethlehem from Micah too. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth to me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days and we heard it last week fulfilled in John in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God but also we see it in Luke chapter 2 in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered each to his own town and Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. So throughout the scriptures, and it's, it's easy to find points of prophecy fulfilled in the New Testament. New Testament. <clears throat> Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. His name shall be called Emmanuel. Fulfilled again in Luke chapter 1, because he was of the house of David. Now there's many others, and I won't read each one, but there's many other portions that might be cited, including the time of his birth, the resurrection, the rejection of his own people, being a priest after the order of Melchizedek, Betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver, accused by false witnesses, crucified with malefactors, pierced through his hands and feet, soldiers gambled for his clothing, no bones broken, his side pierced, buried with the rich, and resurrected. There are said to be 44 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in Messiah's first advent. <clears throat> I haven't counted them, I would know, but let's just say there's plenty. So much so that it would be foolish not to conclude the accuracy of those prophecies. If you and I understand 
the scripture being God-breathed, then there remains no question about who Jesus is. He's the king of Matthew. He's the lamb slayed before the beginning of the world. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins. We know who Jesus is. Today I want us to contemplate who he is and what he's like. To do this, let's consider again the principal text for today from Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us as a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. First, and I'm ready to the first part of my message, we have a growing knowledge of who Jesus is. But yet even the person of Jesus is still a great mystery to me. And though I've lived more years than any of you, I can tell you no matter how many years the Lord gives you, full knowledge of Christ will still be something not attained to in this life. From the very first words, we have a subtle mystery. That is, a child is born. And the son is given. On the face of it, it doesn't prevent a real, present a real problem because every son is a child. But not every child is a son. Glory to God for that. I got daddy's girl to prove that. But this born child and given son is called the everlasting father. Now that really does complicate our little pea brains a little bit. I feel a little bit like... Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John. How can these things be? Which is his response to Jesus. This is one of several mysteries in these prophecies and others within Holy Scripture. Indeed, how can these things be? How could, could we design a Savior like Jesus? In the words of a great songwriter, it's too good to not be true. Quickly, we can rush to our understanding that's gleaned over many years, catechism, Sunday school, preaching, etc. You might be thinking, now, of course we know. We know about the eternal preexistence of Jesus with the Father, part of the Trinity, and that in time and space, about 2,000 years ago, he took upon himself the incarnation, the body, a body you prepared for him, he says in the New Testament. There's no possible way that we could have figured this out except it's been handed to us by others who've searched the scripture for generations. There's no way we can arrive at a full understanding of the mysteries of Christ in this life. 1 Corinthians says, For now we see it in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. Let's consider the mysteries of Advent for a few minutes. He's called a child and a wonderful counselor. 
I may digress a little bit and talk about Wonderful and Counselor and why they're put together in contemporary scripture versions. He certainly is wonderful, isn't he? And thus, he would certainly be a wonderful counselor. This is why complete understanding is beyond our abilities. He's too wonderful for us. Reminds me of Job when Job essentially was asked by God, where were you when I hung the stars? Or as Isaiah puts it, who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel. You ever try to give God advice? What can we say? Because he's wonderful. Aren't you thankful to be part of this church? Are you? I am. I'm happier here than I've ever been in a local congregation before. We have faithful preaching from the scriptures each and every week. And brethren and sistren, you don't get that everywhere you go. We sing praises to God with biblically-based lyrics. We sing a wide variety of types of music, but all accurate, all teaching us, all causing us to remember whose children we are. We share an understanding about who Jesus is and of the Holy Trinity, but we still only know in part. The King James Version, Wonderful and Counselor are two separate names, and if you're like me, that's the way you've memorized it. And it's still hard to quote without separating those two words. But contemporary versions of the Bible, they're listed as one name, Wonderful Counselor. And the solution to this, and this troubled me because I tried to figure it out why and why it's so universally accepted today. And I do understand why. It's not very complicated at all. The thought is that Isaiah was being uniform in his structure. Each of the other three names uh, listed in two words. And it's believed that Isaiah meant the first two to be together. Either way, sure is wonderful, isn't he? That's my point. You ever think about our existence in eternity past? Well, wait a minute. We didn't exist. We're creatures of time and space, aren't we? We know that Jesus Christ existed forever and was in perfect harmony with the Father and with the Spirit. And he took on flesh and became God-man and ever shall be the God-man, bodily returning to us one day. We believe all those things. But what about us? You know, do you reckon God thought of us in eternity past? So in a sense, if God thought about us in eternity past, or to quote George MacDonald, whatever God thinks is, though we potentially became who we became, God doesn't become anything. He's the I am. We became. But in the mind of God, we were something. Isn't he wonderful? I want to ask you this morning, and feel free to answer, what on your experience could you ascribe wonder to? What's wonderful other than the person of Christ? Anybody? Anything wonderful that you'd, that you'd call, this is wonderful? Say again? Well, anything. Well, I'll help you. 
you've probably heard me say many times that I think childbirth is the most wonderful thing I've ever seen. It's that wonderful. And I'm not the first one. There was a fellow named Agur, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote of things too wonderful for him. And it's found in Proverbs 30. I read this. Three things are too wonderful for me. Four, I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. Now, I want to suggest to you that I believe many, many things are way beyond our complete understanding. Do we not become used to hearing about the birth of a child? Especially in a family like mine, we have so many, it gets to be kind of routine. But it's never routine. I mean, I fear we're so aware of the process of conception and birth, we no longer marvel at how amazing or how wonderful such a thing is. The same way we smugly think that we're more clever than that old dude named Agar back in Proverbs. We have National National Geographic. We know precisely how an eagle flies, or we imagine we do. And we've learned that evolution, supposedly, has fitted the serpent to propel himself on a rock. Hogwash goes there. We all know about buoyancy and displacement. We make iron ships. There's no mystery. We know how that happens. And we're told all about romance and intimacy. We've even developed new and scary ways and multiple genders and a lot of stuff. So it's not so wonderful, we imagine. Truth is this. All knowledge of these things and many others that we do have partial knowledge of are incomplete. Our knowledge is incomplete. In every area that we can imagine, there's limits to our ability to imagine. How much more to complement the person of Jesus Christ? We can answer all the questions on a test. We know who he is, that he's virgin born, that he's the son of God, he's truly God, truly man. We can answer all those things. But can we imagine how wonderful such a knowledge is? How much more is it true of our understanding of Christ that it's limited? I want us to consider the heaven-given understanding that rejoices our heart our full understanding yet still incomplete in Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So think about with me, what do we know 
It's really important, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I'm a daydreamer. I've always been. I used to tell my dad, you know, I'd like to take one of those aircraft that land on ships and stuff. He said, son, you'd crash and burn. You can't think straight about anything more than five minutes. And my mind wanders, and it wanders even further afield today. But there's some things I know, and we can say with confidence, Jesus is God, truly God, very God. Could anything be more clear in Scripture than the fact that he's God? He's not like the God of the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses. He's very God himself, manifested in the flesh. We know that we're saved by grace through him and that he has sufficient merit. We don't add anything to it. We don't help him. We come empty-handed to the Christ who fills us. We know these things. Matter of fact, we know that he's even made to us wisdom. And I can read it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I'm happy we can boast in the Lord and not in our flesh. If we could lose our f- salvation, we certainly would. But being in Christ, we're secure. And we remember this at the Advent season. So where is boasting then? Romans 3 makes it clear that boasting over our own righteousness is excluded. That's what Paul says. Where is boasting? Well, it's excluded. That's where it is. We have no reason to boast. We're the one whose sins kept him on the cross as we sing about it. And every time we sing that, I think, boy, that's me right there. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. I think that we also may admit that our full understanding of Christ is not yet attained. Any among us, I'm inclined to think that we'll, we will ever be learning, even in eternity, how wonderful Christ is. Someone said, and I wish I could remember who, worry is the misuse of imagination. Isn't that true? Why don't we imagine things that have not happened and perhaps will not happen? But I think we should use our imagination. I, I, I like to imagine what, what the God-man will be like when I see him. I know a lot about him, and so do you. I believe everything I read about him, but I don't really know him like I shall know him, and neither do you. <clears throat> I want to imagine, try to imagine with me, perfection of our wonderful Savior. He spoke the creation into existence. Think about that. With the Father and the Spirit, of course. Without him was nothing made that was made. 
but we know that about him, and we can imagine what that might be like. I always picture it this way, you know, in the beginning. God said, let there be light. I reckon he just said, light. You know, I don't know how it happened, but in my imagination I try to picture what it must have been like. He took on flesh in time and space. In the fullness of time, he was sent by the Father to be born of a woman. I don't understand that. I believe it. I understand that it's true, but I can't imagine how it was accomplished. He lived in submission, submission to his Father led by the Spirit on earth to fulfill all righteousness. That's why we read Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The law is not finished, but it's fulfilled. He's the end of the law with respect to righteousness for every one of us who believes. He died a sacrificial death in the place, in our place, at the hands of godless men. The Bible says, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. We know that. He is now ascended to the Father and still ministers. Think about that. Jesus still ministers to his elect. He is now, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ lives forever making intercession, intercession for you and for I. What a powerful name, the name of Jesus. What a beautiful name. We sing that song sometimes. I say, what a wonderful name. The name of Jesus. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 2. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and had seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. So that in coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The ages to come. So many things are too wonderful for me. But man, I sure enjoy them. I enjoy imagining some details that aren't given to us. <clears throat> My father he said many things that are memorable. But one thing I've Call him saying many times when there was some issue that was difficult to figure out, he would say, I don't understand all I know about that. And I thought, well, that's true. I don't understand all I know about this. I know lots of things and it's wonderful, but I don't understand everything that I know about Christ. Isn't that where we find ourselves this Advent season? We know so much about our Savior's incarnation, life, sacrifice, Ascension. We know that in some sense or other, he emptied himself. He did not use all the prerogatives of deity when he was on earth. But we don't fully understand this. We can only imagine. We know that he has done a marvelous work in our lives. Your life changed. He's done it. And you know it. We trust his promise never to abandon us and to return for us one day. 
We've learned already and read this to you just now, in the ages to come, he will continue to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. So I imagine that even in eternity future, there will still be wonder and wonderful speculation about learning more and more about the grace bestowed to us by him. So I come to application. I do that because Jason has taught us to expect it. And my application ideas today are pretty simple. It's left for each one of us to accomplish. What application can you make? I mean, I've given you no, no new information. I don't think you've heard anything from me that you didn't already know. However, I may have given you some things you haven't realized how incomplete your understanding is or how you might imagine how these things might be. I've offered no specific motivation. Now, you ought to do this because Jesus Christ is wonderful. But you can figure that out for yourself, how it is to walk in wonder, love, and grace. We have together rehearsed truths already generally known by all of us already anyway. We did that at the table, the songs that we sing, candles that represent the things that we allow them to represent. All these things are just rehearsal of things that already known to us. All I desire <clears throat> in the way of application, if you will, is to inspire renewed wonder in the person of Jesus Christ. We're so jaded, so familiar with holy things. I am, and I think perhaps you are. Just think about it. There's nobody like him. None like you, Jesus. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Will you stand for brief prayer and benediction? Lord, we sing his name is wonderful. We know that it's true. Forgive us for becoming hardened only by the deceitfulness of sin, but by our imagined familiarity with things that are holy. Remind us, Lord, that it's he who saved us. It's he who came for us and that we have a longing for the advent return of the Lord. And in his name, I pray you will do for us what we cannot do even for each other and that we will endeavor for each other to bring remembrance the person and work of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Benediction together. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires Take the water of life without price. And all the people said, and stay and eat with us if you can.